It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to Dig, the History Podcast. It was the year of our Lord, 1323, when Bernard Guy, the Inquisitor of Toulouse, put quill to vellum in one of many efforts to revise his Flores Chronicorium, a yet unpublished universal history from the birth of Christ to his own times. So much had passed since his last revision, but he knew exactly where to begin, writing, quote, In 1321, there was detected and prevented an evil plan of the lepers against the healthy persons in the kingdom of France. Indeed, plotting against the safety of the people, these persons, unhealthy in body and insane in mind, had arranged to infect the waters of the rivers and fountains and wells everywhere by placing a poison and infected matter in them and by mixing into water prepared powders so that healthy men drinking from them or using the water thus infected would become lepers or die or almost die, and thus the number of lepers would be increased and the healthy decreased. And what seems incredible to say, they aspired to the lordship of towns and castles and had already divided amongst themselves the lordship of places and given themselves the name of potentate, count, or baron in various lands, if what they planned should come about, end quote. He went on to describe an event resembling a cross between a zombie apocalypse and a populist political plot perpetrated almost entirely by people with leprosy what has come to be known as the Leper Scare of 1321. Post-Enlightenment hostility towards the Middle Ages and Victorian preoccupations with contagion and quarantine have fed unhelpful stereotypes of the medieval leper. These stereotypes contend that medieval lepers were all pariahs who lived out their days as rejected invalids rotting away in decrepit asylums quarantined from society. Some of this is true. People with leprosy had objectionable bodies, whose disfigurement was believed to be their own fault. The disease became so common in Europe, however, that medieval society was compelled to adapt to the presence of the chronically ill. 
In many ways, leprosy was an ordinary presence in medieval Eurasian lives. Today, we'll be talking about the lived experiences of medieval people with leprosy and how their diseased and disabled bodies shaped medieval Eurasian societies and imaginations for centuries. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should, too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. So I want to interject quickly to say that we'll be using the term leper in this episode because it was the word used in our sources to describe people with leprosy. So some historians argue that leper is a slur, and today it's indeed uttered with judgment and disgust. But recent research has suggested that the medieval usage of the word leper carried less baggage than it does today, and that sometimes it had positive connotations. Therefore, we will occasionally use the term leper, but be aware that we use it in the medieval sense. I also want to say that I relied heavily on an excellent article by Alma Brenner at the University of Cambridge from um, the journal History Compass, and it's in our show notes, and I give Brenner the credit for kind of giving me the framework. I got I used lots of sources, but she wrote a review article, and I kind of used that to structure what I was going to talk about because, really, you could write about this forever. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to give credit where it's due. Um, also, we'll use leper colony, leper hospital, um, leper asylum. Those are all the same thing. They're the leprosaria. Um, so just keep that in mind um, when you hear us uh, talking about those things and using them interchangeably. Okay. Leprosy is caused by Mycobacterium leprae, whose origins are still being investigated. In 2009, the Department of Anthropology at Appalachian State University published their findings of leprosy infection in a 4,000-year-old male skeleton unearthed in Balathal, India. This is the oldest case of leprosy that is yet to be uncovered. Comparative genomic research, which traces the historical migration of the bacterium through DNA analysis, suggests that the earliest leprosy infections originated in either the Indian subcontinent or East Africa in the late Pleistocene period, sometime before 10,000 BCE. The disease reached the Mediterranean region around 500 BCE. Those dates are constantly contested. In the 1960s, anthropologists surmised that Alexander the Great's soldiers contracted leprosy during their campaign in India during the 4th century BCE and brought it back to the Mediterranean when they were decommissioned. 
Paleopathologist and historian of ancient seafaring Samuel E. Mark argues that it was cargo ships and their human cargo that brought leprosy from the Indian subcontinent into the Mediterranean world. One of his most compelling arguments is that Alexander's men spent no more than two years in India, while Indian slaves often lived for decades in close proximity to leprosy. Moreover, the disease spreads most easily among children and adolescents. There were no children or adolescents among Alexander's soldiers, but they made up a large portion of the slave population being transferred in ships at the time. Once the disease was introduced into the Mediterranean basin, it would have spread slowly but steadily into Western Europe and the British Isles. As you can see, leprosy had been around for quite some time on the Eurasian continent before it became a public health emergency in the medieval period. In some ways, the increased visibility of leprosy can be attributed to the greater survival of documentation in this period. But there's also evidence that the infection was spreading faster and infecting more people than it had in the centuries following its introduction into Europe. Leprosy had been identified in substantial proportions of skeletal remains from France, the British Isles, Denmark, Italy, the Czech Republic, and Hungary. India and Byzantium housed leper asylums or leprosaria, but nowhere near the number that proliferated in medieval Europe during the High Middle Ages, suggesting that leprosy infection was not so burdensome to South Asian and Eastern European populations as it would be to those living in Western Europe. Mycobacterium leprae was identified by Norwegian physician J.H. Armar Hansen in 1873, and leprosy has since been known as Hansen's disease. There are currently 250,000, give or take, um, cases of leprosy worldwide, but since the biology of humans and of bacteria change over time, we can't know if today's leprosy acts on the body in the same ways that medieval leprosy did. Though it's an infectious disease, leprosy is not contracted easily. Very few people who are exposed to the bacterium actually develop the disease. I think the about 90% of people are immune to hmm. leprosy. Immune or are they just... Immune, yeah, actually yeah. immune. Huh. Um, and then some are carriers, and then uh, others actually develop the disease. Huh. Um, yeah, there have been at least two instances of leprosy epidemic in recorded history. In the 4th century CE, the Eastern Roman provinces suffered from the first leprosy epidemic. Um, the disease spread and grew for centuries, but it wasn't until the High Middle Ages, so that's kind of, that time period is sort of 1100 to 1400, let's say, um, that the rate of infection again reached epidemic proportions. Scientists still have no idea why leprosy grows very slowly and then enters episodes of crisis where it spreads really aggressively. Hmm. It might also help to know that there are two forms of leprosy, lepromatous leprosy and tuberculoid leprosy. The worst of these was lepromatous leprosy, which progressively ravaged the body over time. Sufferers often had large open sores, deteriorating facial features, nerve damage, and degenerating extremities like fingers and toes. People with leprosy often tend to develop hoarse voices, a staggering gait, and partial or total blindness. In the 2nd century CE, Arteus the Cappadocian described how the leper appearance influenced the behavior of those around them, writing, quote, When in such a state, who would not flee? Who would not turn from them, even a father, a son, or a brother? One anonymous sermon written in the 9th century compared lepers to, quote, walking corpses. 
Historically, though, several diseases outside of Hansen's disease were deemed to be leprosy. For example, leprosy makes several appearances in the Bible and, of course, in Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, obviously. obviously. <laughs> but historians have discovered that this term denoted people who were separated from mainstream society because of conditions that rendered them, quote unquote, impure. It could also be used to denote an illness that was miraculously cured, whatever that illness might have been. Um, and true leprosy caused by Mycobacterium leprae was called by Greek and Arabic medical scientists elephantiasis. It's believed that several skin diseases and otherwise degenerative diseases outside of Hansen's disease could have been deemed to be leprosy in the medieval period. Very few leper cemeteries have been excavated, but of the few that have, 70 to 80% of the recovered skeletons have classical signs of Hansen's disease. So that kind of means that 20 to 30% do not. (laughs) The others may have suffered from leprosy's less aggressive form or an entirely different pathology altogether. And you'll hear in April's episode on syphilis that syphilis can often mimic leprosy as well. So it's possible that that's what was going on. Um, It's important to keep in mind that a medieval diagnosis of leprosy is not necessarily an accurate identification of Hansen's disease, but that medieval people had no conception of mycobacterium leprae, so they would not have differentiated between Hansen's disease and diseases with similar presentations. At the same time, the possibility of misdiagnosis was more rare than one might think. Medieval clinicians were incredibly conscientious in their examination and diagnosis of suspected leprosy. A positive diagnosis was life-altering. For most, it resulted in their admission into a leprosarium, which in turn triggered arrangements for the leprous person's property liquidation and transferal of any outstanding inheritance to the trusteeship of the leprosarium prior. So this kind of ended the person's life in a social sort of way. Right. Had very big repercussions. Right. Suspected leprosy often led to litigation, which could sometimes pit ecclesiastical against secular authorities. We have documentation of one suit that was filed, quote, against two leprous priests from the Burg of San Syria, who are not residing in their own cottages outside the Burg, but among the people in the very Burg. What is worse... They keep concubines with them who openly bring the ecclesiastical vestments to the Church of St. Syria for the masses to be celebrated by those leprosi to the scandal and peril of all the people of the said burg. So that leprosi is what they call people, mm-hmm. lepers, lepers basically. Lepers multiple. Yeah, lots of lepers. So the townspeople petitioned the ecclesiastical court of Troy or Troyes in French, um, to take action, uh, quote, or else lords such as the temporal lords of said place will apply a remedy in accordance with the law, end quote. And that is... It's kind of a ve- it's a super passive aggressive threat because they're basically saying to the ecclesiastical courts, well, if you don't take care of this, then mm-hmm. you know the lord of the land will, mm-hmm. and that's you know fighting words because um, at this point in time, um, secular lords were sort of trying wrestling with ecclesiastical courts over like who's going to have jurisdiction over the people. Gotcha. So like you better kind of step up or yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. When a town lacked a leprosarium or the suspected leper was a foreigner or Jew and was thus ineligible for admission into a leprosarium, a leprosy diagnosis usually meant expulsion. A French Jew named Elianus de Montel was suspected to have leprosy in 1462. Enraged townspeople of Borge and Bresse petitioned the town council writing the following. 
The people are clamoring about the Jew Elianus de Montel, why he is not being expelled from this town, even though he is and has long been leprous and many Christians, as well as his own folk, have dealings with him. Because of this constant interaction, several have allegedly been affected and stricken by the said disease, and many more can expect to be unless remedial action is taken. Furthermore, while Christians are expelled from the town when they become leprous, this Jew is allowed to stay here in town thanks to numerous irregular favors. Dripping with resentment. Like, you know, like we... We have to go, but right. this guy is allowed to stay, right. not to mention the kind of underlying, like, anti-Jewish right. sentiment going on there. But one of the ridiculous things is that he wasn't eligible for a bed in the nearby leprosarium, unlike Christians would have been. Right. So when a Christian came down with leprosy, they had somewhere to go. He didn't have anywhere to go. Um, so their complaint that he's, like, being favored somehow seems sort of shitty because... Actually, he just doesn't have Basically, to go. they just want him to go. Yeah. Go away. Right. Expulsion. And like they're saying, oh, well, Christians go, but they go to somewhere that takes care of them. They yeah. don't, like, go to die by themselves on a mountaintop or whatever. Right. In any case, uh, months of litigation followed. The local burghers agitated the conflict by accusing Elianus's son of being leprous. The son was outraged at what he perceived to be defamation, and the town council agreed with him, mm-hmm. saying, quote, he had only the beginnings of the disease, with signs in his eyes, eyelashes, face, and speech, end quote. Which is horrifying because that sounds like he had some serious leprosy. Yeah. But um, Elianus, on the other hand, was pressured to leave willingly so as to save the time and expense of legally expelling him. But he refused. The syndics of the town council forwarded the people's complaint to Amedeus, heir apparent of Savoy. So this is they're just going up the ladder. Uh-huh. And they added to the petition, quote, many Christians as well as Jews would communicate with him all the time, especially his wife, children, and household, and the town's other Jews who trade and deal with Christians on a daily basis throughout the town, not only in the market and streets, but everywhere. Furthermore, it should be kept in mind that these Jews also bake bread in the town's ovens, draw and use water from its springs, wells, and streams, buy meat, eggs, cheese, fruits, and other vittles in its food market, squares, and shopping centers, and that they touch all of these things with their hands. Mm. They breathe in the face of the Christians when they come close, walk, or stand around, talk, and so on, and they infect the air, end quote. The council, Amidius and Elianus, eventually reached an agreement, quote, in order to remove all doubt and to calm the people's clamor. Elianus and his son would be inspected for leprosy, and if they were found to be leprous, they would have to pay the expenses and examiner's fee. If they were found to not have leprosy, the town would be on the hook for the expenses. Perhaps to save his son the humiliation of an inspection and possible diagnosis, Elianus eventually admitted to having leprosy and was initially relocated to the outbuildings in the Jewish cemetery and later moved to the nearby Castle of the Lord of Romans. His son agreed to reimburse the town for the expense. Given the high stakes of a leprosy diagnosis and the possible litigation involved in a misdiagnosis, authorities were careful to render diagnoses only after irrefutable signs of leprosy. In the history of medicine, it is a rarity for us to have surviving records describing the inspection and diagnoses of patients in detail. We have more of this for leprosy patients because of a legal procedure called Iudicium leprosorum, which is um, translated from the Latin um, judgment of the lepers. 
In the early centuries of the medieval period, priests conducted Iudicium leprosorum, but in the 1200s, the process morphed into a medico-legal procedure performed all across Europe with small variations. The first medical Iudicium leprosorum took place in 1250 in Tuscany. Four physicians were paid by the state to inspect the bodies of suspected lepers so that the court could pass judgment on their legal status as lepers or non-lepers. In 1261, both the magistrates and bishops of Castiglione del Lago appointed two trusted men to inspect the body of a suspected leper under the aegis of a physician and in the presence of three witnesses. Though the sources say that people's entire bodies were inspected, we have paleopathological evidence that medieval Europeans focused primarily on facial disfiguration when rendering a leprosy diagnosis. Anthropologist Jesper Boldson analyzed skeletal remains from three Danish cemeteries. Um, so he these three cemeteries, he chose them strategically. Odense, which is a leprosarium cemetery, so theoretically you have lots of lepers. Malmo, which is an urban cemetery close by. And Tirup, which is a rural cemetery uh, close by. One would expect that skeletons showing signs of leprosy would be generally confined to the leprosarium cemetery. Not even close. Boltson found that up to 50% of the skeletons in Tirup, the rural cemetery, showed classic signs of leprosy. The biggest difference between the rural cemetery and the leper cemetery were the incidence of facial disfigurement. If these findings are representative of Europe as a whole, then there are many people living with leprosy in mainstream society, and leprosaria were probably reserved for patients who presented with significant facial deformities. Mm, that's really interesting. However, there is no doubt that leprosy was particularly common in continental Europe after 1100. Some have called this uptick in leprosy infections a full-scale epidemic. This was not a case of increased visibility of lepers and a resultant sheer panic. Leprosy really was becoming an uncontained infection. We know this from skeletal remains, written documentation, and by the institutional histories of leper asylums. In the 7th century CE, the French opened the first leper asylum or leprosarium in Western Europe. The number of leprosarias grew steadily for centuries until the 11th century when their numbers multiplied exponentially. By 1225, there were an estimated 19,000 leprosaria in Europe, with 2,000 of them in France alone. Leprosaria were most often located in small ways outside main settlements. This practice was prescribed in the Bible and was thus the general rule in Christendom. At the same time, leper hospitals were almost always situated alongside a well-traveled thoroughfare so that the patients could solicit alms from passersby. For example, the propagation of leprosaria in Spain coincided with the growth of the Santiago pilgrimage route to Compostela. People with leprosy made the pilgrimage themselves in search of a miraculous cure, but they also developed leprosaria along the road or traveled alongside other pilgrims for the sole purpose of attracting alms. Right, so they were kind of entrepreneurial. <laughs> so they're thinking, wow, there's lots of people on this trail. And it's interesting, like I'm thinking, I'm... I'm curious if the alms asking was a byproduct of the fact that they're on these trails, like like perhaps they're on the trail because because there's lots of people going and they want people to kind of drop them off before they get to town. Mm -hmm. And then the alms kind of came after. Right. Or if it actually is like a forethought and they're building them with the idea that they will be able to ask for alms in, in a way to support themselves, which actually right. seems very altruistic. Right. 
Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't. I don't know. I'm we, sh- I'm, and I'm, we don't I'm know sh- which one came first, or like we don't know. I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure probably somebody's figured that out. I'm just. It's. Just I don't know if I they have it. because yeah. the the article that I read specifically about this, he's like, we just we don't know. Yeah, but it's just one of those kind of funny social things that happens, and like which comes first, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Chicken and egg. Yeah. Leprosaria were important hubs of poor relief in medieval Europe. Many of them housed clergy and qualified as monastic institutions eligible to perform Christian offices. They were legitimate religious institutions and attracted wealthy benefactors. King Henry II of England, for instance, was a regular supporter of leprosaria. It is possible that people suffering from poverty or from unidentified diseases may have collaborated with authorities to secure diagnoses and seek refuge in these institutions. And we do have some evidence with those Iudicium. We have proof that in some of those, people would sometimes not really have the symptoms of leprosy, but be declared to be leprous so, there was so that they, they could, could go. go. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense. Wealthy lepers could often use their resources to conceal their disease or to at least support themselves outside of these institutions. King Baldwin IV of Jerusalem contracted leprosy early in his life and benefited from several physicians who scrambled to develop a cure during his short life. And I think this guy, I swear this guy is one of the main people in um, The Kingdom of Heaven. Have you seen that movie? I... The Leprous King of Jerusalem. No, I guess I haven't. Okay. I remember it coming out, but I, I don't think I ever Well, saw he wears it. a mask in the whole thing. Oh, it's kind of like the man in the iron mask-ish type of thing. Huh. And then he takes off his mask towards the end and, like, dies. He's young. He's, like, 23 or whatever. Yeah. His face is all effed up. But anyway. We should, we, should, we should go and find out. He's the only one that I ever <laughs> – every time I hear about him, I just think of that movie. Yeah. Um, this was a rare luxury for a privileged monarch. Until at least the 14th century, physicians wrote treatises about the cause, diagnosis, and treatment for leprosy, but very few, if any, actually treated leprous patients. Hundreds of records of leprosy diagnosis exist for the years 1100 to 1350, and almost none of them indicate the presence of a physician. There were some exceptions to this, but when the treatment of lepers was permitted, it was highly regulated. Physicians at the University of Montpellier, um, well, it's, I guess, Montpellier, but in France, they would have said Montpellier. Now, around here, it's Montpellier. <laughs> it's around Montpellier. Um, isn't that like the capital of Vermont or something? You don't remember that from learning your capitals? Okay, so anyway. No, I was educated in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> you only learned the capitals of Texas. Hell yeah, we did. <laughs> um, no, but so... Yeah, so the University of Montpellier, they were subject to the following decree released in 1240, stating that their physicians were to, quote, accept no leprous in their care for longer than eight days, except with permission of the royal court if the leprous is in the king's territory or from the Episcopal court if he's in the bishop's territory, end quote. At first glance, the removal of lepers from main settlements and the strict regulations of physicians in treating the disease suggest that medieval Eurasians believed leprosy to be highly contagious. This was, however, not the case. Europeans did not begin to regard leprosy as a contagion until the 13th century. Classical Greek and medieval Arab scholars described leprosy as an infectious disease that was spread by breathing infected air or eating infected food. They also asserted that there was a hereditary factor that determined someone's susceptibility to the disease. 
Perhaps their caution prevented leprosy epidemics like the one experienced by Western Europe in the 13th and 14th centuries. According to an Arab medical certificate from a collection of medieval manuscripts, a Jewish man named Abraham living in the Abbasid Caliphate was diagnosed with leprosy in the 1260s, and a physician wrote that, quote, it debars him from mixing freely with the Muslims and from earning his living, because that condition is a transmissible and communicable disease. It was only during the massive pandemic of the Black Death that medieval Europeans began to theorize about contagion and identify leprosy as an infectious disease that could spread from body to body. I think that's really surprising because you would think that since this whole like leper pariah thing is such a trope that that we hear about that Europeans were thinking they were contagious and that's why they were containing them somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. But they didn't think they were (laughs) contagious. But why then why did they send them away? Well, I'll get into that. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay. So teach me. (laughs) Teach me. (laughs) Learn Um, me up, Marissa. So uh, for most of the medieval period, Europeans conceived of leprosy as a chronic, corruptive illness that caused the body to deteriorate from the inside out. So this understanding of leprosy is grounded in humoral medicine, which we've discussed before on the show and which Avril will also discuss in her um, syphilis episode. Um, In short, most diseases were perceived as being caused by an internal imbalance of bodily humors rather than as a result of outside factors on the body. So this isn't germs. This is an environment. This is something that happens from the inside out. Physicians relying on the humoral doctrine used purgatives, enemas, and plasters, which are like, um, uh, sort of like, it's like a mud mask. Yeah, it's, it's to exactly. To draw out impurities, right? Mm-hmm. Like a like a mask, but you'd usually put it on like your back or some part of yeah. your body. Um, so they use those things to draw excess humors out of the body. Even when physicians were willing to treat patients with leprosy, very few people could afford to pay for the long-term treatment that was required for this chronic disease. Physicians more often appear in records as witnesses or consultants in leprosy cases and not as clinicians who treated them. The vast majority of lepers relied exclusively on the lay staff at their leprosarium for treatment. Though they had no medical training, leprosaria staff did their best to treat the patients in their care based on physicians' advice. Diet modification was thought to be the most effective way to bring the humors back into balance. Leprosy was attributed to an excess of black bile, which is one of the four humors, and this is a drying humor. So sufferers were encouraged to eat foods designated as moist, eggs, poultry, pork, fresh milk, and fish. Leprosaria typically secured fishing rights, raised dairy cows, and kept pigs and hens so that patients had access to foods that improved their health. Hmm. Lepers living in the Abbasid Empire were encouraged to spend as much time as possible in hot and moist environments to counteract the cold dryness of their excess black bile. Arab physicians also recommended bleeding, cupping, bandaging, and the application of stimulating ointments. They may also have used cauterization to treat ulcerated skin, an old treatment dating back to ancient India. Arab medical experts also believed in the healing power of certain gems. For leprosy, Xenocrates recommended topaz engraved with the design of a ship and worn on the left ring finger to protect against leprosy. At Leprosaria in Byzantium, lepers were treated with bleeding and purgation at the advice of Paul of Aegina. Others focused their energies on the seeking of miraculous healing. One 13th century account describes a man suffering from advanced leprosy who worshipped the life-giving font in Constantinople and was subsequently cured. 
During the 9th century, several miraculous cures of leprosy were reported in the Byzantine city of Germia, which is now in Turkey. People suffering from leprosy and other disfiguring skin diseases entered a fish pond filled with holy water. God commanded the fish to, quote, lick the patient's bodies all over. When they emerged from the fish pond, they were miraculously cured. So are these like those fish where you can get like a pedicure? With? Yes. That's a, no, that, that's the most ridiculous. Yeah. So okay. some scholars have argued that this wasn't like a miracle so much as an early example of balneotherapy, which is um, spring water therapy combined with fish therapy. So apparently some fish called doctor fish in modern contexts um, will eat dead skin off of people's bodies when they're submerged in water. Imagine, so they're Yeah, I imagine probably most fish would I mean, do that. I mean, right? You like would when think. they come up, they take a little bite of it. You know, I don't know, like, but like maybe fish, I mean, aren't fish vegetarians sometimes? I don't know. I, not I, always. No, they, they, usually, they eat other fish. I was just at the pet store the other day and I had to, me and Vincent were like standing there watching a fish. Like, eat another <laughs> fish. Gross. <laughs> like, oh my God. Well, they probably think of it as like, because it's, it's not. I mean, it's dead skin, so it's like algae. It's like eating, you know. So anyway, um, (laughs) so gross. Balneotherapy is simply the use of spring water for therapeutic uses. And this was common in ancient times, medieval times, over the 18th century, if you think about the resort towns of Bath, England, Mm -hmm. and then through today. Oh, yeah. And then the 19th century, it was like a big deal to go go take the waters or whatever. Right. Shoot, I take an Epsom bath all the time. I know. I do it, too. Unsurprisingly, then, bathing was the other primary treatment for the disease, which explains why leprosaria were typically located near water sources. Fortunate hospitals like the Leprosarium of St. John the Baptist were located near natural springs and mineral-rich waters containing sulfur. Mm. Leprous patients were encouraged to take hot, scented baths. The heat encouraged sweating, which was believed to rid the body of impurities, and soaking relieved some of the pain from their open sores. As they scrubbed their bodies, they removed dead skin and brought sensation back to their damaged limbs. So there was... I mean, sure, even now, there would be health a, benefits of that, for right. sure. Yeah. Um, there was also a religious aspect to this treatment. Water was believed to have power to wash away sin, and in the case of baptism, restore the bather to a state of grace. Medieval people often believed that humoral balance had a parallel relationship to moral rectitude. A chronic imbalance and the resulting corruptive illness might have signaled to peers that the patient suffered from a guilty conscience or moral failures. Their decaying bodies were outward manifestations of their decaying souls. This agrees with what we know about leprosaria before leprosy was understood to be contagious. Rather than an infectious threat, Western Europeans may have confined people with leprosy in spaces where they could not influence the moral integrity of medieval society. So it's more of a moral and, you know, religious contagion sort of mm-hmm. instead of something a, a must be wrong with you in order to have gotten this. Yes. This horrible so like, disease let's kind of thing. Yeah. Let's not pass on your moral failings to right. others. Right. Roman and Byzantine writers had always associated leprosy with venery. Eddius, writing during the reign of Emperor Justinian, asserted that lepers had insatiable sexual desires. Rather than a symptom of the disease, Eddius insisted that venery made people's bodies particularly vulnerable to leprosy. This was why, he argued, the disease was more common in men than in women. This line of thought is particularly apparent in medieval literature. 
lepers appear as malevolent characters lacking a moral compass. And Tristan and Isolde, lecherous lepers, begged King Mark to allow them to rape Isolde as punishment for her infidelity. In the quest of the Holy Grail, Percival's sister is bled to death by a hideous leper woman in need of virgin blood to treat her deformed face and body. And these are resemblances here to historically marginalized people in other contexts. For example, the caste of Dalit, or untouchables in India, are believed to be morally impure and bodily unclean due to their low births. They generally marry inside of their caste and endure prejudice from people outside of their caste. In the 18th century, laundresses were ostracized compared to prostitutes and night soilmen because they were female, often single, and worked elbow deep in other people's filth. People with syphilis, as Averill's episode will show you, occupied a similar space in the Western world. Their misconduct was advertised on their skin as they suffered from sores, blindness, and insanity brought on by sexual, quote-unquote, sexual misconduct. Right. Or presumed sexual right. misconduct. Right. But medieval lepers had quite a different status than these other examples. In the world of medieval Christendom, lepers suffering by disease, poverty, and isolation was often perceived as a positive quality. Roman Catholic culture was one that valued the persecuted and the suffering because their trials brought them closer to earning salvation. The figure of the leper was iconic in the medieval world, the ultimate symbol of Christ-like poverty. Several saints, including Francis of Assisi, Hugh of Lincoln, and Martin of Tours, were reported to have kissed lepers as acts of redemption in their hagiographies. Peter of Poitiers, a 13th century theologian, argued that lepers had, by their existence alone, earned a religious rank. He suggested that their status as God's elect meant it was appropriate for them to live in religious cloisters in service to God. Leprosaria maintained strict religious itineraries designed to bring lepers into the fold of religious life. Frequent donations to Leprosaria in the 12th and 13th centuries demonstrate that the prayers of cloistered lepers were believed to be particularly effective for lay people seeking salvation. Badass lady historian Anne-Marie Leander Tuati argues that leper asylums are better understood as voluntary retreats where people with leprosy worked towards salvation rather than as sinister asylums to which they were committed against their will. Hmm. Though leprosaria resembled hospitals and orphanages in some ways, residents had many more rights than inmates in these other institutions. In fact, historians who study leper hospitals have gone so far as to call leprosaria experiments in democracy. Residents formed committees with authority to direct institutional finances and discharge priors and other authorities for incompetence. In contrast with mainstream medieval society, women had similar rights to the men inhabiting the leprosaria. Some leper hospitals had female priors. So in some ways, it almost sounds like a convent. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yep. This interpretation of leprosaria as religious houses seemed even more likely since we know that Jews were excluded from them. There were certainly many Jews with leprosy, but at the time, it was considered rare. Medieval surgeon Henri de Montville claimed that because Jews seldom have intercourse during menstruation, few Jews are leprous. So this claim was based on old biblical conceptions of purity 
and pollution, many of which inform Jewish practice even today. Menstruation, like pork, was ritually unclean, so the bodies of couples who had sex during menstruation were at risk of corruption from the inside out. In this vein, medieval medical scientists also tended to think that children conceived during menstruation would be born leprous. Interesting. It all comes back to sex. Sex and women's vagina being the worst, right? There's only one Jewish leprosarium that we know of, and it dates to the 13th century in the city of Provence in France. The Provence leprosarium was not stable or long-lasting like most other leper hospitals, but it appears to have been an abortive attempt at a Jewish version of the Christian leprosaria that dotted the European countryside. Jews may have cared for their own lepers privately within the home or used social capital within their communities to make private arrangements. Remember Alanias de Montel, we, we mentioned um, earlier in the show, who was relocated to a nearby castle after he was found to have leprosy. That's the one with all the litigation attached to it. Alanias was lucky. Many ordinary Jews likely faced sad and lonely fates due to their systematic exclusion from leprosaria and a lack of resources. Though we no longer believe that lepers were locked away in asylums against their will, the stakes of a positive leprosy diagnosis for a medieval European were high. No event demonstrates this more clearly than the leper scare of 1321, which we mentioned at the top of the show. Really, this story is so complicated and so wild that it deserves its own episode, but I can give you the basics. Um, In June 1321, King Philip V was residing in Poitiers when he received news that there was a disturbance in the upper Aquitaine region. Dozens of lepers had confessed to poisoning the wells with prepared powders in order to kill and or turn leprous all of the healthy people in France and Germany. The accusations had begun in April of that year at Perigieux, Um, Suspected lepers were arrested and tortured, their confessions taken, and used to capture additional members of the plot. After their confessions, they were burnt at the stake. The plot grew, as per these tortured confessions, uh, to include all of the lepers and Jews in France, as well as the king of Granada and the sultan of Babylon. King Philip took immediate action, first condoning the state's response in Perigia and subsequently issuing the following ordinance. Quote, public knowledge and the course of experience have shown that the lepers have attempted to kill Christians by throwing poisonous potions into the water, not only in France, but in all kingdoms subject to the faith of Christ. End quote. The king decided on the following measures to ensure that all individuals implicated in the crime faced punishment. One, lepers who have confessed or who confess in the future are to be burnt alive. Holy cow. Yeah. Two, oh, yeah. Trigger warning. This, yeah. <laughs> these, are, these are dark. No joke. Two, if they will not confess spontaneously, then torture should be applied so that the truth can be extracted. Three, female lepers should be treated in the same way except those who were pregnant, who should be imprisoned until their infants are of sufficient age to live and feed without their help, and then these women should be burnt. Four, what happened to their kids? Wouldn't they, if they thought it was hereditary? Anyway. I don't know. This is all just bad. Four, lepers who confess nothing, those who will be born in the future, and leper youths. Those who will be born in the future? bonkers. Both male and female who were less than 14 years old should be imprisoned in their places of origin. Five, lepers who have reached the majority, which was 14 years of age, and who confessed in the way set out above, were to be burnt. Damn. 
taking no so prisoners. Witch, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's a witch. It's a witch scare. Really? No, yeah. really. That's exactly yeah. Or a pogrom, but like right. a leper pogrom. Right. Um. So the ordinance also declared their crimes to qualify as less majesté, which is the French. Uh, version of treason, which meant that lepers had forfeited their property rights. Convenient. So, right. mo- <laughs> oh, yeah. they've forfeited their property rights. Now we can have it. Like, okay. Yeah. So, most citizens um, did not wait for the king's ordinance to take action. By the time the ordinance reached the rest of the kingdom, many lords had already executed nearby lepers and confiscated their property. Bernard Guy writes, quote, In many places, in detestation of the horrible act, the lepers, both men and women, were shut up in their homes with all their things. Fire having been applied, they were burnt by the people without any judgment. No. End quote. The lepers in Tours may have been fortunate for this quick death. People with leprosy in most other French cities were arrested and tried by the French inquisitors. Hmm. Remember the Inquisition? Yeah. Um, okay. so, so it does kind of go hand in hand. Yep. So being a subject of the Inquisition was a lose-lose situation. Most prisoners suffered horrific torture and eventually made confessions under duress. They were subsequently burned for their crimes. Others refused to confess and were tortured to death or refused to confess and burned for their crime. So either way, I mean, if you refuse to confess, you accidentally die during torture or you are burned to death because you didn't confess. Mm -hmm. Um, Inquisitors reasoned that those who confessed were much better off because they received absolution for their sins prior to their deaths. There were, of course, many exceptions and much variation based on locale. So we're talking about a large part of what is currently France and Germany. And I just want to say, you know, there's there's a lot of variation. This isn't how inquisitions always went, but it kind of is how they usually went. Um, So... Uh, just keep that in mind. Yeah. A record of the specific events of the plot come from Inquisition records, as well as from the chronicles of people who were present. Guillaume Agasse, head of the leper colony at Estang, turned state's witness and explained the two lepers from his colony had obtained poisons from Toulouse the previous November in preparation for the event. Another leper named Etienne de Velez was charged with poisoning the well in Cahors. Eventually, Agasse, presumably under duress, admitted to organizing the event on a warm summer evening in the hall of his own house. He addressed his fellow lepers with the following, quote, you see and hear how other healthy Christians hold us who are ill and shame and disrespect and how they throw us from their meetings and gatherings and that they hold us in derision and censure and disrespect, end quote. So because of this, it was decided that all healthy Christians in the world should be poisoned so that they too became lepers. And then the present lepers would take, quote, their administration and governance and to obtain and cause this, the preceptor said, and announced that it had been decided and ordained among the leaders that they would have the king of Granada in their aid and defense, which king had already announced to other leaders of maladies that he was prepared to give his advice and aid in the matter. So basically, this is a convening of lepers, you know, plotting out this political coup, kind of. Yeah. Um, supposedly. But remember, he was tortured to get this. After Agassi's confession, the ditches of the springs in Estang uh, were excavated by investigators and an infected, quote, ball of dung was recovered. Right. 
So somebody put some infected poop in there. So (laughs) witnesses testified that it had been deposited there by a leper the year before to poison the springs. Bags of poison and infected matter were recovered from springs and wells from all over France. Eventually, participants began to implicate Muslims and their rulers in Spain and Palestine as having supported the uprising. Um, So remember, this is... uh, this is um, shortly before the beginning of the Reconquista. It's like this is a time when a lot of Spain is still under Muslim rule, under mm-hmm. the Moors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, right away it's like, oh, these lepers are dragging these Muslim kings into this. This is also during the Crusades, during yeah. the last crusade. You know, lots so going on. lots of kind of political and, yeah. <laughs> Things gotcha. all involved, right. Okay. So according to Inquisition records, uh, the Muslim rulers demanded that the lepers, quote, deny the faith of Christ and his law, end quote, and that they should receive the poison which the kings had ordered to be made. This was a mixture of the powdered remains of a consecrated host. So this is bringing all kinds of weird antichrist, like witchcraft, Um, quote, which the Christians call the body of Christ, end quote, Uh, and a concoction made from snakes, toads, lizards, and bats, together with human excrement. If any of the commanders resisted these orders, then the man with the halberd would at once decapitate them. So they're saying that... So under torture, these people are saying, um, yeah, you know, we got the Muslim leaders in on this and they told us that we have to convert. And if we didn't convert and put our poop in these wells, then our heads would be cut off. I mean, yes, like all, all gathered under torture. Right. It's just yes. it's it's Bonkers. some it's just a, a yes. bit much. OK. A bit much. That's a good way to put it. It's a bit much. A pogrom also accompanied this anti-leper hysteria. The anonymous author of the Chroniques Parisienne, for example, wrote, quote, This devilry was done by the encouragement and the incitement of the Jews. Another chronicler writes, quote, The Jews in some parts were burnt indiscriminately and especially in Aquitaine. In Tours, 160 Jews were burnt to death in a large pit. Their wives were generally spared, but in many cases, the widowed women threw their sons into the burnt pit to die with their fathers. They considered this fate to be preferable to the alternative, which would surely involve their baptism and fosterage by the Christian nobles who had organized the pogrom. The richest Jews were kept alive until their debts were paid and then executed, their estates confiscated by the king. King Philip V confiscated an estimated 150,000 levers from the pogrom triggered by the leper scare of 1321. Convenient. Convenient. The royal coffers are now full. Look, I just got a, a, a notification on my phone that I have to report, record the podcast today. Yay, good. I'm there glad go. you're here. <laughs> you showed up. <laughs> Yay. Um, so this... This event could be an episode in and of itself because it, it actually gets very complex. And, I think you should. I think we need to do more convoluted. story type of episodes. Yeah, I think it would you be should. a good one also. And also, yeah. I feel like we don't really talk about, about Jews all that. Like, no, we don't. We don't. You're right. Focus on Jewish society or anything all well, that much. There you go. Not on purpose. It just hasn't come up. But there's your next yeah. assignment. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I, I figured I would at least cover some of the basics. Um, of Just, course, check out our our show notes because I'm assuming you're going to give people like further reading. If, yes, if this is something there's that one book interest. that I'm especially upset that I couldn't include, and it was called um, 
I think it was called On the Margins of a Minority, and it's about leper Jews. So mm. you're, they're like a double pariah mm-hmm. because Jews themselves were actually considered pariahs and often called pariahs. Um, they weren't quite. They had their own communities and things. But lepers were also called pariahs occasionally. And so this author, mm-hmm. um, he is a historian. He delves into what does it mean when you were both of those things, mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. you were uh, a pariah in a group of pariahs. Mm-hmm. And it's super interesting. And I wanted to go into it, but it's already, you know, long enough. So um, definitely check out the show notes if you are interested in this. But I think, you know, the important thing to keep in mind is that this uh, sort of Victorian idea of the dejected and rejected and isolated leper right. isn't quite what was going on. Right. Um, these leprosaria were like located on main roads and things people interacted with them um so it wasn't quite what we were thinking also um it appears that in a lot of cases it was uh a preference once people had leprosy they wanted to go to leprosaria Mm -hmm. because they were cared for Mm -hmm. um they you know they did they had staff that kind of nursed them and and helped to treat them Mm -hmm. and also there are some evidence of people saying that they didn't want their family to see them falling Slowly apart. die. Yeah. Yeah. So that it was kind of a relief that they didn't have to live amongst their friends and family and have them see mm-hmm. what was going on because mm-hmm. it's such a visible or disease. Or have the burden of caring for them and then right. the burden of being um, – either called or con- called contaminated or right. becoming contaminated. Right, and you, in kind of way. taking your whole family down with you yeah. sort of thing. Right. So to sense. a lot of people, the leprosaria were a refuge. An escape. Yeah, a yeah. refuge. Yeah. And especially people who were very poor because, the you know, there wasn't state-sponsored poor relief or anything. It sure. was all just church charities, mm-hmm. which, you know, were significant. But, mm-hmm. um and yeah. then and then and then it sounds like they kind of it's almost like taking vows too in a right. way like then they they devoted a lot of their time to prayer right. and contemplation right and so people would say oh I you know <laughs> she's not I was gonna awesome. say I baked a bunch of hose last night now I have to go get some like not really but you know people who where are you going with this <laughs> you're like analogy I don't no. <laughs> people saying you know like if they um, committed some horrible sin or whatever sure. they, they could- would say well. I could have a monk pray for me and pray for my um, soul, but it would be even more effective if I had a leper pray for my soul. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways they had like Because their suffering steps. almost took them closer to God. Yes. Right. right. Okay. And this is where Jesus Christ Superstar comes in because he walks around and he's like touching the lepers and he's saying, you know, like, I'm going to touch you and um, I can cure you and, you know. Actually, in the first one, he yells, there's too many of you, because they start, mm-hmm. um, you know, rubbing him all over and blah, blah, blah. But um, so they might have had a sort of positive, a more positive status than we like to believe. But mm-hmm. at the same time, social pressures like the Black Death, the Crusades, and then economic turmoil and political instability, um, people like lepers and Jews and Muslims um, – were easy scapegoats for European anxiety. So mm-hmm. when a bunch of other stuff was going on, mm-hmm. they were also the first people that people turned on. Right. They so got pulled into that anxiety. Right. That moral panic, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there's political tons panic, of similarities to witchcraft in the 17th century and mm-hmm. 16th century. So, mm-hmm. um, and really this is all because of the decrepitude of their faces and their bodies. It's all because of their appearance. Right. Um, so it was the disease's visibility that made lepers these iconic and problematic figures in medieval Europe. 
Um, and that's why we're starting our bodies series with this. There you go. Well, so you. that's all we have for today. you today. Okay. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And we appreciate all of your support on Patreon. Uh, you can visit us there at Patreon backslash dig podcast. Yep. And if you want to join our dig history pod squad, just search us on Facebook and request to join the group. And we would love to share memes with you. Yes, we would. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Pork. Enraged townspeople of Borges Ibris. Oh, Borges. Enraged towns. Sorry, it sounds like breasts. Breasts. Borge and breasts. Borged in breasts. It's still you. Oh, okay. Let's keep going. Wait. Right? No. Yeah, well. Here we are here. Leprosaria were important hubs of Oh, sorry, relief. sorry, sorry. I was lost. <laughs> I was lost. Um, because. Because. <laughs> Just because. Just because. Um, Proceed with venery. Atius. Atius. I always say venery. Venery? Venery. I always say venery. I would never say venery because it sounds like wiener. <laughs> That's why I like I'm it. I'm going to say venery. Wienery. That's okay. You can keep no, your venery. You can keep you can your wiener veners. <laughs> okay. Menstruation. Um, like pork. Oh, I get what you're saying. Like, <laughs> you thought, like, you thought like, like pork? porking? No. No. I just. <laughs> oh, I just uh, okay. Could solicit alms from passerbys. Passersby. Could solicit alm. The council, Amadea. Once the disease was introduced into the termet. Leopard. Set a party fell. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.